Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? My name is Kyle. If you haven't met me yet, I'm on staff here. Um, Before I get started, I do want to apologize. Uh, I'm a little sick. I've got a cough, among other things. So if I'm coughing a lot, sorry. You're just getting the real me. All right. Um, So this week, um, as far as uh, Advent goes, it's the week uh, where people will talk about angels, which would have been a really fun topic to go off on, but that's not what the Holy Spirit encouraged me to speak on. Um, Instead, what I want to do is um, the angels in the nativity story show up to several different people, shows up to Mary, shows up to the shepherds, Joseph. Um, This morning, I kind of want to focus a little bit on Joseph, an element of Joseph's story. Okay, Uh, I'm going to pray real fast, and then we're just going to dive in and see where the Spirit goes. Father, as uh, we begin to dive into your word, I just, uh, I pray that what we do here this morning glorifies you. I pray that you will help my body keep it together so that it's not a distraction, And I pray, Lord, that we will be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives based off of what you want us to hear today. Love you, Father. Amen. All right. So to begin, um, Kim, if I could grab that first slide. Okay. Um, So to begin, we have Matthew 1. I'm starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. In my experience, when we talk about this story or when we read this story, I see us fly right through it. Really, the situation with Joseph, it's a few sentences. But I'm going to encourage you to slow down with this a little bit. Something I make a big deal about in my, uh, if you don't know, I'm a high school teacher. I teach Bible classes um, at a local high school, and biblical interpretation is one of the classes I teach. It's my favorite class to teach. In biblical interpretation, I stress the point that when you're reading your scripture, don't just let it be stories on a page. Those are real people living in real time with real experiences. Slow down and allow them to be real. Look at those lines again and think about this situation. Um, To give you a little bit of background, Mary would have already 
gone down and spent a few months hanging out with Elizabeth, and now she's come back. So she's at least several months pregnant. And she shows up to Joseph and says, I'm pregnant. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a second. She shows up to you and says she's pregnant, and you know what you did not do. What is that experience going to be like for you? Seriously, think about that for a moment. What would that be like for you if that happened to you? This person that you're committed to and that you trust and everything's good shows up to you and says they're pregnant, and you know it's not yours. Let yourself feel what Joseph would be feeling right now. Think about that. On top of that, she says it's from the Holy Spirit. That's got to be the best line ever. The Holy Spirit? You've got to be kidding me. How dumb do you think I am? I mean, at least you could have done the whole, it's, it's not you, it's me, or, you know, something like that. From the Holy Spirit, that has got to be the best one ever. And when you read the text, he does not believe this. Feel his pain. How should he respond to this? Okay. I'm going to go on a nerd path here. I think... Matthew gives us some clues as to how he should respond to it, but I don't think it's as straightforward as we would love for him to do. Right before this story in Matthew is a genealogy, and we love genealogies, right? When you have a Bible reading plan and you get to a genealogy, what do you do? Skip it. I need you to know that I could do a whole message right now on the genealogy in Matthew 1. It is so packed full of important information. In fact, there's all kinds of Easter eggs. Is it appropriate to call it Easter egg? There's all kinds of Easter eggs in it, that Advent eggs. Okay, yeah. It's full of all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't catch just flying through it. But yeah, we, we tend to skip genealogies. Well, we're going to start with just a, one little piece in this genealogy because I can't just skip the whole thing. Okay, so a genealogy... Um, it's a patriarchal culture. They're going to have so-and-so's the father of so-and-so, and then they're the father of so-and-so, right? That's the path it's supposed to take. So in Matthew 1, right at the beginning, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. He's not supposed to say and his brothers. Um, Matthew didn't get very far before he messed up the genealogy here. He's doing something. Jacob is the father of Judah, and that's the way that the genealogy is supposed to go. But Matthew intentionally says Anna's brothers. Anybody, uh, what's another one of Judah's brothers that would be really significant? Joseph, perfect. Matthew wants you to think about who the brothers are. That is, the brothers are going to make the 12 tribes of Israel. But Joseph is the other of the brothers that is really significant. So hold on to that. Okay? Now I'm going to jump down to the end of the genealogy. By the way, genealogies, I don't know why you skip them. If you haven't finished having children yet, there's all kinds of good names in there for naming your children. Um, let's see. I mean... Uh, 
Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan's a good one. Matan is the father of Jacob. That's maybe rings a little bit of deja vu for you. Jacob is the father of Joseph. Okay? Who's the husband of Mary? Mary's the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Matthew intentionally set this up so that you would see in the Old Testament, in Genesis, Jacob is the father of Joseph. And once again, we see it at the end. Jacob is the father of Joseph in the New Testament as well. One of the many Easter eggs here. Advent eggs, I'm sorry. Okay, so there's a few similarities between their stories. Um, number one, when we look at Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph in Genesis, um, he's known as being Joseph the... Let's see if anybody's got it here. What's that? He is the favorite one. Uh, Joseph the dreamer, right? He's known for his dreams. Joseph in the New Testament is also known for his dreams. I'm not going to touch on it, but before we get much further in the story, he's going to have a dream where an angel is going to show up to him and say, actually, she is pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Um, he's also going to have a dream that says, you and Mary and the baby got to get out of here because Herod's coming. He has another dream that says Herod has died. You can head back to Israel. And then he has another dream that says, actually, go specifically to Galilee. Both Josephs are known for being Joseph the dreamer. Um, and then there's another big piece that is the main point of my message today that they have in common. Okay? So we're going to jump to Genesis 37 and look at the story of Joseph in Genesis. This is going to get really confusing. You're going to have to try to keep track of these Josephs that we're talking about. In Genesis 37, it tells us um, that uh, this is the account of Jacob's family line. It's not Joseph's story, as many of you think. The Bible specifically tells you it's Jacob's family line. There's other characters in there that are really important, not least of which is Judah. Um, this is the account of Joseph's, I'm sorry, Jacob's family line. And we meet Jake, Joseph, who it tells us is 17. Take a moment right now. Um, most of you are much past 17. Stop and think for a moment. What was life like for you when you were 17? Okay. So by this point that we've encountered 17-year-old Joseph, we already know that Joseph comes from a really messed up family, okay? He's born into a family that's really messy, really problematic. Several generations, there's already been a history of lying, manipulation, exploiting family members. Even Joseph's father, Jacob, has a favorite wife. Heather's my favorite wife. Um, he has a favorite wife, and he has to specify that he has a favorite because there's four different women that are having babies for him. Four, okay? And Rachel's his favorite. Joseph is his favorite son because he's the oldest of Rachel's, okay? Stop and think, how crazy of a life is this? How chaotic do you think their household is? All the messiness, the complications, all of those things, okay? And so now, from the story, we start talking about things that Joseph does, and I'm not going to get into them all, but... What I see is we tend to criticize him for the choices he makes. 
He's, he's wrong in how he handles things, but this is what I'm going to say. He's a 17-year-old in a really messy situation trying to maneuver through life, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to guess I'm not the only person who made really dumb, crazy choices as a teenager trying to make it through messy life, okay? I, I kind of feel like sometimes we spend too much time victim-shaming him. That's my opinion. He's in a chaotic, messy, complex situation trying to figure it out, okay? Um, from here, what we're going to see is, is, is that Joseph gets sent by Jacob to go out to where his brothers are. Um, so if I could have the next one, please, Kim, that'd be great. And as he's going out there, this is where the story picks up. It says his brothers saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Anybody here ever wanted to harm a sibling. Actually, maybe don't raise your hand. But at some point, we've all wanted to harm a sibling, right? They want to kill him, and they're serious. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. <coughs> Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. If you don't know what a cistern is, um, in a, an environment that has wet seasons and dry seasons, they have dry seasons. Those in the ground that they set up to gather the water in the wet season so that they'll have it for the dry season, okay? It's a pretty deep hole, okay? Um, we're going to kill him, and we'll throw him into one of these cisterns. We'll say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they strip him of his robe. They, they took him. They throw him into the cistern. It was empty. I don't know if that's good or bad. That's going to be a hard impact when you hit the bottom. Um, there's no water in it. And then what do they do? Uh, they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming. They were on their way down to Egypt. Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brother's agreed. We won't kill him. We'll make money off him and let someone else do it. So his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And then they went back to eating their lunch and counting their money, I guess. So when I picture this um, I've always pictured it as this scene as, as Joseph being very submitted to his fate, tied up in some way, being led off to Egypt. Okay? That's how I've always pictured this. But here's the thing. If you actually jump to Genesis 42, years later, the brothers were all discussing this situation, and this is what they said. In verse 21, it says, We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not Listen, he does not go away submitted to his fate. It tells us he's crying out for his life. He's pleading his, for his brothers to save him. All while they're counting their money and enjoying their, I don't know, euro or whatever. Okay. This is going to be a serious betrayal, right? A serious, heartbreaking betrayal betrayal. No matter what drama might exist, most people tend to see their family and their friends as their security system. Joseph's family sold him into 
slavery. I'm going to ask you to humor me for a few minutes. I want to share some stuff about my own personal story. Okay. Um, my family was really messed up. And I'm sure other people's families are messed up, and I'm, I'm not interested in saying whose is better or worse. I just want to share some of my story about it. My parents were um, both very manipulative, very hurtful people, um, up to and including there was lots of physical abuse that took place. I am extremely well aware what a belt feels like, um, what it feels like to get a bloody nose from your parents, lots of different things like that, okay? Lots of stories. I just want to tell you one story for an example. And this story takes place when I was about 13. Um, to give you a little bit of a reference, I was not a big 13-year-old. Um, I mean, most 13-year-olds aren't that big, but I was not a big 13-year-old. And my dad, uh, who was much larger than me at this time, um, just to kind of picture him, he was a, a former Marine, and that's kind of how he carried himself and how he saw life. Um, so I'm 13. And on a Saturday morning, I was asked to clean my room. Okay, I'm going to go get my room and clean it. And I know that it's going to be inspected by my dad before I can be done. So I know how to get it done right. I did a really good job of it. Cleaned everything I could think of, dusted, did, did it all. My bed was made tight. Making your bed tight, apparently, is something that's significantly important in life. Um, Heather's probably thinking, you don't even make the bed now. But maybe there's a reason for it. My bed was made tight. Everything was, I, I think it was good. Just as I finished up, my dad appeared in the doorway. Now, my dad had this thing about him. It's a weird thing where he could just magically appear in the doorway. You didn't hear him coming. He just would arrive. And even if you weren't looking at him, you somehow kind of could feel that he was there. I kind of picture it as like you see those movie scenes where your main character's looking forward, and then as the camera turns around, there's the villain standing behind them, right? My dad could do that. He would just show up. I don't know how he did it it really would be a good skill as a parent to be able to just magically appear somewhere. Um, but when he would show up, it would, it would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It was just crazy. But he shows up just as I finished. And he says, did you clean your room? Yeah, I just finished. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, I think it looks pretty good. Did you get your room done? Yeah. Yeah, I checked everything. It looks good. Okay. Well, so he starts inspecting my room. He's looking under dressers. He's looking in the closet. He's looking around, inspecting everything, checking for dust on bookshelves, uh, looking in the closet, um, looking under the desk, looking all around. He gets to the the bed, he looks behind where the headboard meets the wall. What's this? I see his body just stiffen up. In my mind, I'm like, what did I miss? What, what could be there? There's not that much space. What, what could possibly be there? What's this? He stands up. I was going to drop an, a, an example for you, but you wouldn't even see it, okay? 
is a tiny little speck of paper that somehow was just behind the leg of the bed. And I just see this rage just build up in him. Why did you lie to me? I, I didn't. Didn't. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't see that. No. You lied to me. I asked you if your room was clean. You said yes. I thought it was. I'm sorry, Dad. I missed it. No. You lied. And at that moment, he just lunges forward. He puts both of his hands around my neck, and he begins to squeeze. He's a strong man, and I'm a little guy. And it really hurts. And I can't breathe. And I'm really scared, and I'm looking in his eyes. He's killing me. I'm grabbing his hands and trying to pull him off, and I can't get it to budge. He's just staring at me, and I can't breathe. It's going on and going on. And after what felt like forever, he lets go, and then he walks out the door. I'm completely shook up. I could see in his eyes, I thought he was about to kill me. It felt like he was killing me. I don't know, maybe he was and he changed his mind. I don't really know. But it was really scary and it really hurt. I just sit down on the floor with my back against the bed and I just kind of start to cry. I don't know what else you do. And after a minute, my mom shows up in the doorway. She just looks at me for a second and she says, oh, Kyle. Why'd you have to upset your dad today? And then she left. I don't know how to describe the feelings that go along with this. I, I didn't do anything. I, I missed a little paper. I, I didn't mean to make him upset. It would have been nice if somebody actually cared about how I felt in the moment. On the next day, we're at church. And my mom notices a bruise on my neck. And really crazy thing, she asked me what happened. How did I get the bruise? What do you mean, how did I get the bruise? But she asks. My dad's standing right next to her. There's other people there. It's not like I'm about to say, Mom, I can't do that. But Dad did it. Right? But I can't do that. So I say, well, there was this other kid. We were roughhousing a couple minutes ago. Maybe something must have happened from that. So she takes me to that kid's mom, shows her the bruise on the neck. She goes off. He gets in trouble for it. All right. So... For a long time, I mean, my dad moves out, actually within the next couple of months, he moves out. Um, so there's that, but it doesn't change things with my mom. Um, through my teenage years, I'm an angry person. 
pretty hateful person, pretty confused person, pretty broken. Um, I don't really understand how to make sense of life, and because life doesn't make sense, why should I try to make more sense of it? I end up getting in lots of trouble. I hang out with lots of wrong people. I know when you see me as the guy who stands up here sometimes and goes on too long in my sermons, um, I look like Bible nerd Kyle. I probably don't look like the guy who at 17 was arrested. Okay, That was a different person, right? I was a pretty messed up kid because I was carrying all these things with me. So after, you know, by my 20s, when I come to a place where I, I pledge my allegiance to Christ, I start to go down this path of asking what does it mean to be a disciple, and this whole forgiveness issue starts coming up. Over and over again, you hear messages about forgiveness. Okay, well, great. What does forgiveness look like? So it's a term that we use theologically, like forgiveness. We, we say it a lot, be forgiven, whatever. But do you actually think about what that concept truly means? Okay. So let's see. So I have a $5 bill here. I'm a private school teacher, so this is riches. Um, if I loaned this to uh, Robert, I loaned that money to him. He now owes me a debt, right? I loaned him that money. If Kyle gets up right now and hits me, there's a debt of justice, right? He hit me. Something needs to happen in return. We know this concept. It's an eye for an eye, right? Okay. So whether it's Robert or Kyle, they're in debt to me. Forgiveness is the idea of choosing to sacrificially take the loss for the, from those debts on myself. I don't need to be paid back the $5. I do. I, I don't need to pay uh, Kyle back for hitting me. I set them free from that debt in forgiveness. We see this in, in Christ. He models that for us, right? Um, I owe him a debt for my sins and all of that, and he gave of himself to cover that up, right? He pays the debt through the cross. No one deserves to be forgiven, but if I understand that I've been set free by the blood of Christ, then I understand the need to set others free. In fact, there's multiple places where it specifically says, you know, the idea that your forgiveness is connected to how you forgive others. The Lord's Prayer, which, by the way, is also in Matthew. Um, we specifically pray that um, forgive us our debts as we forgive others' debts, right? Um, why? Because... If you can't forgive other people's debts, then you don't truly understand the debt that you have that's been forgiven. So you haven't accepted it yet. It's not that it's not available to you, but it's that you haven't accepted it yet. So the two are connected, okay? If you truly understand how you've been forgiven, you will be compelled to want to forgive other people. 
Again, it doesn't mean that they don't deserve it. Robert does not deserve my $5. Um, if, if Kyle was to hit me, he does not deserve to just walk away. I don't deserve the forgiveness that I've received. My parents don't deserve my forgiveness. When you forgive, it doesn't mean that there's not pain attached to it. There's a loss that's attached to it. Okay? There is a pain that goes with it. But it doesn't stop there. What it does is it opens up the door finally for there to be healing. It, if you hand it over to God, then you can allow him to now start working in that space in your heart. Okay? You might say, well, I don't want them to get away with it. Kyle hit me. I don't want him to get away with it. My parents have done what they've done. I don't want them to get away with it. You could say that. It doesn't feel just to just let someone walk away free, right? In Romans 12, if I could have that slide, it says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Oh my goodness, we're modern American Christians. We don't like that word wrath. It's a bad word for us, right? But is it? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a bad word, okay? It just has to do with how we filed it away. Okay, so we get this discomfort at the word wrath. Wrath is a bad word until you're a victim who wants God to act on your behalf. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, there's this uh, scholar. His name is Miroslav Volf. Um, if you want me to spell that out for you at another point, that's fine. He has, uh, he's done some really good work on this. And he talks about, so he experienced, uh, by memory, I want to say it's the Balkan War, where he was present in it. He knew people that were there who died. He suffered injustice through it. He experienced the pain, the atrocity of living through war. If you don't know what that looks like, turn on your news. It's really visible to us right now what war looks like. And he talks about that it would be really easy for him to hate. He's got all the justification in the world to hate. But he says it's actually God's wrath that allows him to not hate. Because here's the thing. If you understand that God is the just judge, which, by the way, I am not a just judge, which is why I don't belong judging other people, because I'm not a just judge. But he is a just judge. And if you believe that, and if you trust that, then you can hand your injustice over to the just judge and let him deal with it in the way that he sees fit. That's where his wrath comes in. Does that make sense? Do you want him to respond to your injustice? I do. And I can trust that he will in the way that he sees fit because he's a just judge. What that does is that now frees me. I no longer have to carry the weight. Kyle hit me. He's a punk for it, but I don't have to carry that weight anymore. I can hand it off to God, 
It's no longer something on my plate anymore, and he can carry it. I don't need to. And it sets me free to not have to carry that weight anymore. And it allows me to move forward and forgive. Does that all make sense? So maybe you're thinking, okay, well, what if the situation is still there? What if the person still does things that hurt me? What if they don't seem to think what they did was wrong? Those are valid questions. I'm going to jump to uh, Genesis 50. Uh, over the years, there's a reunion that takes place where Joseph is actually able to rescue his family, as crazy as that is, um, and he takes care of them until we get to the point where his dad dies. And the brothers freak out. They think that with their dad dead, maybe Joseph is now going to bring his vengeance. So they completely lie to Joseph and try to manipulate him. It's going to start at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God, uh, your father. Uh, when the message came to him, Joseph wept. Jacob did not send this message. And I believe that Joseph knows that his brothers are still messing with him. But we're going to see that he's going to still choose to move forward anyway. He is not interested in allowing them to still hold him captive by their brokenness. Let me jump back to my story now. We're keeping track of three different stories here. This is good. So my story. So my dad choked me. That was in the late spring, early summer of 1990, okay? Um, just a couple years ago, 2018, he was going to have a minor heart procedure done. Now, he lives just outside um, Atlanta, Georgia, um, which is where we were back in 1990. Uh, so I actually said, I'm, I'm, I'll go back. I'll help him. I'll be with him, you know, for this procedure or whatever. That's fine. So I go back there. Um, and we're sitting down at a restaurant having dinner. Um, and he proceeds to say, look, I know, you know people in the family think that our house was really messed up. And I don't understand why. Anxious dinner time conversation. It's kind of uncomfortable. But I did choose to start telling him a couple of things that had happened. Like, you don't understand? But okay, here, here's a couple of things. The last one I told him was the story that I just told you guys. Um, I was a little stressed doing it, but I told him this story. And just as I finished up, I'm telling him about how that kid got in trouble for the mark he left on my neck. He started laughing. He didn't remember any of these things happening. They weren't important to him, I guess. But he thought it was really funny that some kid got into trouble for this mark he left on my neck. There was no sorry. There has not been a sorry. There was no recognition that he'd hurt me or that I was genuinely scared thinking my father was about to kill me. Not even the recognition that this is a reflection on our relationship that as his son, I actually thought he was capable of killing me in that moment. None of that stuff seemed to cross his mind. He just laughed. 
It's funny, I guess. So what do I do about that? I know what I wanted to do. I wanted to give him a real-life example of wrath. Um, he might have been a Marine in his 20s, but in 2018, he's a flabby 73-year-old. I'm pretty sure and I could handle it. Um, but I had to make a choice in that moment. What am I going to do here? Like Joseph, nobody would have faulted me for being upset. But like Joseph, I realized that I could be burdened by the anger and pain. Or I can let God take it. And trust him to know what to do with it. Johnny Cash uh, once said, you can choose hate or you can choose love. I choose love. And that quote has always stood out to me. Because it, it's something that speaks to me. I choose love. And I choose to forgive. And in saying I forgive, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a one-time experience. Because let me assure you, my family didn't become automatically perfect the day that I forgave. They still do things. Or things still pop up that remind me of old situations that get me all triggered again. Hey, I forgave that, but now that this is coming up again, it's very real for me again. How do holiday seasons feel for you guys? I hated holidays. Christmas sucked, except presents were cool. I learned to just love presents about Christmas because everything else about Christmas sucked so bad. The presents were the only good thing about it. The rest of the time you had to spend around your messed up family. It's not a healthy way to view Christmas, but it's a truth. That's part of what makes this message so important this morning. How many other people in this room have to wrestle with the concept of forgiveness as we get close to the holidays? Most things. My parents still do things. Mostly my mom because she lives close by, but my parents still do things. And when they set me off, something happens that sets me off, I have to go back and remember, no, I forgave. I need to stop trying to pull the reins in my life back from God and let him have them again. And in my best moments, when I go through that process, I remember to pray for them. Because you can't hate somebody when you're in the middle of praying for them. It's transformative for you. Okay? Um, in Matthew 18, 21, Peter asked Jesus how many times we need to forgive. Seven times? Is that enough times? And Jesus says no, 77 times. And the 77, it's figurative, meaning there's no cap to it. You just keep forgiving. Why? Because that's how he forgives us. He just keeps forgiving. Well, does this mean that you need to just let someone keep hurting you? Do you put yourself in compromising situations out of love? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think enabling somebody to hurt you is love. I don't think it's loving to them, and I don't think it's loving to you. So that's not what I'm proposing. Okay? Maybe the situation you're in is not a safe one where it's healthy enough for you to walk up to them and say, let me have a conversation with you so that I can forgive you. 
you still you have to use wisdom about it and try to dis- determine if your relationship with that person is at that place. Um, but either way, you can still forgive in your heart and lay it before the Lord. Okay? Um, it's, it's very possible he might take it from there and down the road, open up doors for that conversation. Maybe not. But you can still go on that transformative journey of forgiveness. Okay? So, for example, for my parents. For Heather and I, we both still show my parents respect. Okay? Um, sometimes it's hard to see them and love them in a sense of a mom and dad, but we can still show them love as people, right? Um, but the thing is, we haven't fully told my daughters all the stories. They don't need to know all the stories. Right now they need to be kids, and that's their grandma and their grandpa. But at the same time, there's no time when we're around my family when Heather or I are allowing my kids to be alone with them. They are never in a room where one of us is not present. Okay, you're going to walk down the hall? Fine, I'm going to follow. That's called wisdom, making sure that my kids can't experience anything that they shouldn't. Okay? Um, I can forgive, but I don't need to be unwise about it. And that applies to many kind of situations. Maybe there's somebody that you're, you can still be cool with, but you just know you can't trust them with certain things, and that's part of loving them as well, is knowing what they can handle, okay? If we continue to look at Genesis 50, I'm going to look at verses 19 and 20. How does Joseph respond to them? Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. His brothers meant to hurt him. But God used it for good. His brothers made the situation really ugly, but God makes ugly things beautiful. My parents hurt me, but God took what they did and turned it around into something that empowers me to love others harder, uh, deeper, uh, to know what the pain that other people might carry might look like for them so that I can be available to say, You don't have to carry it alone. I do not believe that God caused it. There's different theological positions. That's all fine. I don't believe that God made my parents abuse me. I believe, though, that God is sovereign and powerful enough to take the reins of my life from them and lead me down a different path. The power of forgiveness set me free from anger from hatred, from pain, and gave me the strength to love a whole lot more in reflection of Christ. Okay. Now let's jump back to Joseph in the New Testament. This is how Joseph responds to Mary when she drops this really hard situation in his lap. She says she's pregnant, and he knows it's not his. How is he supposed to respond? Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The law says that Mary could be executed for this. The law says it's the, the two people caught in adultery are supposed to be, uh, are, they can be executed. Okay? But the way Hebrew law works is it's not absolute. 
you have room to work. So he could choose that path for them. Just like I could choose to hit Kyle back. We haven't even hit each other here. This is such a violent discussion. Okay. Um, what the law does require of Joseph is that he has to take it seriously and respond to it. That's where the bottom line is for the Hebrew law. Okay. Um, so he does. But look at the way that he's going to respond to it. It says, now remember, this is a person that he believes has committed this, this really horrible betrayal and hurt him. And remember, it's still fresh for him. But what does he do? He wants to not expose her to public disgrace. He's keeping her best interest in mind. Who does that? One who understands who God is. One who understands what God is doing. One who wants to be a participant in God's kingdom, reflecting him. Because that's what God does for us, right? Even while we still are doing things that are offensive to him or hurtful to him, he still puts our best interests first. I'm going to propose, my speculation is that God sees this heart in Joseph and that's part of why he picks him to be Jesus' father, because he sees the kind of heart that he has. And remember, Jesus is the one who's going to one day um, find himself on a cross. And with his last breaths, he's going to take time to pray that God would forgive the very people who just nailed him there. I know this is not an easy topic for some people. For some people, this might not be something that you deal with. But for others, this might have been a heavy topic for you. Don't brush it off. This is significant. If anything, the kingdom of God is a place that is a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. Okay? I want you to know that there are people all around this room that would be happy to walk with you on this journey if you want to go down this journey, okay? Um, we have uh, Robert, uh, Jesse, uh, myself, um, Bob. There's people all around who are happy to walk with you. So please, please reach out to somebody, okay? We're going to move... Um, towards communion. Um, so um, the band, you're welcome to come on up if you want. We're going to move towards communion. And this is what I want you to have in mind as you prepare yourself for communion. In Matthew 5, it says, if you are... Um, okay, can I have the next one up there? There you go. Thank you. Um, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. In short, what I want to point out about this, though, is that before you come before the Lord, he wants you to already be in the experience of moving towards reconciliation. So we have the elements that are up here where we get to participate in the life of Christ. 
either before or after you get your elements, this is what I would like to challenge you to do. I would like to strongly encourage all of us to take some time in prayer, asking for the Spirit to reveal to us who we need to offer forgiveness to, who we need to begin the process of reconciliation with. Um, ask God to show you the wisdom as to how, it go, how to go about that process. There's not just one way. Every complex situation has its messiness to it. Ask God to help you begin to learn the wisdom of how to move into that reconciliation. And lastly, ask God to show you who in the body of Christ you want to walk with you on that journey. Because you can't do it alone. Following Christ is not a solo sport. Okay? You need those three things. Okay? You need to recognize who you need to forgive. You need to ask God for the wisdom of how to begin this journey. And you need to ask God to reveal to you who is the right person to walk with you on this journey. And you've got a room full of people around you who want to walk with you. After you have sincerely submitted your heart to the Holy Spirit to begin this process, then I invite you to take the elements. Okay? So we'll come up on the outsides, go back the, the middle. I'm going to pray first. Father, if there's anything forgives, know about you. We definitely have to start at a place of you are the one who just freely forgives so much. And you call us to join you in this journey of reconciliation in the world. And you ask us to start in our own personal lives. For many of this, this for many of us, this is a this is a really, really hard journey to go on. Just pray that your Holy Spirit will encourage us, comfort us, strengthen us, enable us um, to love like you and to forgive like you. I love you, Father. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.